this, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. My name is James McPherson. Today, we've got a returning guest, somebody that was on a podcast a long time ago, but that time they came with a, with a partner, and today, they're riding solo. Let's jump into the intro, and we'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit that subscribe button and the bell so you never miss another episode or if you're on spotify hit follow or wherever on all of those other little algorithm buttony thingamajigs my name is james but first i'm the md of risk fluent and the host of this awesome podcast thank you very much for tuning in today we're talking to a returning guest a guy that was part of one of our very popular episodes um but that time he came with a partner there was a gruesome twosome as they call it which turned into a threesome when i got involved um michael came back because he thought you know what i didn't get a word in edgeways last time now it's my time michael's doing some awesome work there's a great snippet of this uh, towards the end of the podcast which is kind of like a little mini lesson on learning teams so make sure you listen all the way through or if you're got terrible patience or you're really busy you can skip to the end um but it's a great conversation really about kind of imagine imagine you've imagine you've just kind of read a new views book or a behavioral safety book or a I don't know, normal accidents or something like that. You've read a book and you're like, oh my God, there's, there's, there's a different way to do safety. Or maybe you're stuck in this whole bickering between one and two, new and old. And you're kind of like, I just, I just want to know how to do this stuff. Or kind of Michael tells us how he's experienced that and how he's starting to do the do in his workplace um there, there is no silver bullet in this and there is no silver bullet in the whole of rebranding safety or any of the books out there no matter what any of the marketeers tell you there is no three-step process five-step process or ladder to culture change it does not exist but what you can do is find as many different ways of people have succeeded and failed and try and find out what works for you and that is what we talk about let's jump into the episode Right, mate. Welcome back to the podcast. On your own as well, actually. You were you you had a tag along on the last two times you were on, didn't you? Oh, I think um, to be honest, <laughs> um, I had a bit of competition because I couldn't get a word in edgeways the last time. I think with Steve, so it's <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I, it's just it's just so I can say my piece now, right? It's. Uh, <laughs> This is what I meant to say all those months back, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's been stewing with me for all this time, and I've just been itching to get back. <laughs> Can't sleep in oh, I, need, I need to go back. I need to go back. <laughs> no, it's good, mate. Thanks for having me, so I appreciate it. No worries, mate. No worries, mate. Um, do you want to give yourself a little introduction in case people can't remember you uh, from the last one? Yeah, so um, my name is Michael Cornan. I'm an Irishman living in Brisbane. I've been here for 21 years. 
Um, I've been an agency professional for about 15 years. Um, probably the thing that changed my life and got me into this profession was in 2003. I was in a gas explosion um, while working as a chef and then kind of led me down this path. And probably in the last couple of years, um, probably two or three years, really got into Safety Differently, Safety 2, um, working with different organisations and I'm now in a role where um, my job is to to do things differently, and um, so yeah, it's it's really fun. But working for a, a, a an energy transmission company here in, in Queensland, and uh, so it's an exciting time for for transmission in Australia with all the renewable energies and stuff. So yeah, cool. I just um, this talking about like the you know. New renewable energy, the future. I just watched a TikTok this morning. Well, they're building like this mirrored line city in in um, Saudi Arabia. I think it was. Have you seen that? I have seen something about it. I haven't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know too much about it, but I know what you're talking about. Mate, honestly, it looks like some Blade Runner shit. It looked like I was watching. I was like, is this real? Like, I feel this is not real. And it's like, oh, there'll be three levels. And I was half expecting them to be like, and those levels will be divided by class. We'll put the, the working class at the bottom. We'll put the middle class in the middle. And that's what it feels like. It feels like, and the whole outside is like, is a mirror. And I was like, this is some Resident Evil shit. Like, this is some weird ass stuff. And the company building it is the Umbrella Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, mate, uh, there's some really cool stuff happening in the space at the moment. Like, over here, um, obviously, because you're trying to get rid of, um, I suppose, the, the fossil fuel generators over time. So the challenge we've got with the government targets is to kind of, how are we going to get there and then still maintain power to people's houses um, and then trying to get a right blend of electricity um, to, to kind of manage the peak load, um, you know, this time of the day here in Australia in the afternoons where people are having showers, having dinner, watching TV and stuff. Um, and because, you know, we've got plenty of sun, um, we can manage, we can manage during the day, but obviously we've, we've got to build up a lot of storage and then other forms of power. And then, with that comes all of its challenges of um, trying to balance the load. So you you know with your renewable, it's not as stable as as your your, your coal powered or your your gas fired power stations. So, I mean, it's interesting. Mm. We need like rain panels over here in England. It's like you put them on the roof, and then when the rain hits the panel, it converts that kinetic energy into electricity, and then I think it'd be really consistent. It's the same. I reckon you could put. You could put mini generators in your downpipes, mate, and I reckon you'd make a generator enough for electricity to, to power the house. So I reckon that's an idea. We would. We would, mate. I think we'd make a generate enough electricity to power the world, mate, with the right amount of rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm coming home for Christmas, so I'm, uh, I'm. that's the one part of coming home that I'm not looking forward to is the rain and the and everything else. But, yeah, should be fun. Yeah. Right, mate. We're going we're gonna to do uh, kind of essentially like a little a case study episode we don't really have a name for these types of of episodes but we'll try and get it really get into the problem in sense or or kind of where you are now um then kind of touch on where you want to be like what your long-term vision is and then and then really get stuck into how we want to how we want to get there so if you, if you want to i think you've, you've already kind of touched on it but like if you could just kind of paint a picture for us as kind of what what's your current state um and, and what 
what either attract you to do something different or what was the problem? What was the thing that you, you weren't comfortable with that you wanted to change, if that makes sense? Yeah, look, Ed, the, the story behind um, where, where I'm working at the moment is that we've, the, the business um, is in a unique situation because we're a government-owned corporation. And so we're in, in energy transmission. So uh, with some of the points that I mentioned before, we have an ever-changing industry. For a long time in Australia, transmission towers and wires were pretty stable. There wasn't a massive amount of growth in, in the electricity market. Um, and therefore, we, you know, we built, um, I suppose, infrastructure um, at, on an as-need basis, but it wasn't huge amounts of work. Um, now comes the, the global targets for, for, you know, for I suppose, um, for reducing carbon um, and uh, fossil fuels. And so there, therefore, as an organization, we've had to change over the last number of years. The context for us is that our CEO kind of started with the business a few years ago and um, could see, he'd come from generations, so he could see that there was a big change in the market and what that draw was a need for us to kind of guide the market. And then, and what we meant by that is, um, because we're owned by the government, um, we needed to support the industry to kind of drive the renewables into areas where, um, where we could actually provide infrastructure to bring that power back into the network. Um, so that's the kind of high level stuff. At, at a business level, what it means is that, you know, we had we did a lot of regulator work. And so now our non-regulated work, which is these smaller energy generators are coming into the market. Um, we needed to connect those to the grid. So for us, it was really about how do we uh, pivot and move as an organization to kind of support that work. Um, while still maintaining what we had to do in the regulated space, but then move into this space where it's going to become really fast paced, where more and more generators are being added to the network. And we've got to have the, the, the staff, the resources and everything else. And we've essentially got to change our business model um, to support that type of work. Um, so at the same time, um, kind of um, some of the guys in our team just was getting into the safety differently, safety two, um, and they, they were kind of making connections between how we were trying to move as an organization and, um, and then how this stuff could help us be more agile because we needed to support the business to be more agile as well and create systems and processes that would support the work and not, not hinder what we were trying to do, but also to manage risk at the same time. Um, so I came into the organization probably about 15 months ago in a, in a capacity where I was initially to do investigations, but we, we implemented uh, learning teams really early and we just started experimenting. And, and, uh, and then off of the back of that, we're starting to do other forms of operational learning as well, which are to create good information for leaders to make good decisions, essentially. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really cool space. Yeah, what a fascinating space. So when, what were you kind of... What were you kind of not getting from like either the existing, yeah, like the existing approach to safety? Did you just not feel dynamic enough to be able to deal with the fast-paced environment that you were that, that you were dealing with, and at the same time, kind of adequately manage the the risk of doing what you need to do? 
Yeah, look, where we are, we've got some really good processes in place. We've got really good robust systems in place. Um, but the systems were built at a time where we were pretty static as an organization. So to be able to respond quicker to the changing needs of the organization, we had to kind of, and not, not take away any of the stuff that we did traditionally, because that's all really useful, right? But more add to it. Um, and it's, it's actually essentially creating different forms of gathering data right, around work. So traditionally, our safety systems and processes are very linear in, in nature. So what they do is essentially, if you look at an order process, it'll, it'll order through a stream uh, or a HSC um, element of the HSC system, right? Um, and what that does, it tells you about whether that system is working in isolation. It doesn't necessarily, and it tells you how the work is complying to the system, all right? And it also gives you some information around how we're being compliant as an organization. So that's still, that's still the case. And so other processes are very linear. They don't always talk to each other. Um, so we kind of needed to create tools that could kind of flip that around another way and actually really go out into the field and understand from the workers what they see are the risks and controls, um, what are the things that are affecting their work, um, and then add that data to the existing data. And so where we are at the moment is actually we're just trying to work out as an organization the best way to use the information at a very basic level. We're using it to start informing uh, whether it changes to our HSC system and how to improve work in certain areas. Um, but the I suppose the other thing that we're trying to do is not just look at the HSC information in isolation. We're trying to create up a data pool that people can pick and choose from that data and use it in whatever way they see fit because we're gathering a lot of really good operational data through learning teams um you know both proactive and reactive and also some other tools that we've established called work insights um which are really going out into the field and asking people what's working what's not working because the things that affect safety sometimes have got nothing to do with safety whatsoever Mm. Uh, it's more, for example, we do lines work, right? And we, we, our guys might be changing insulators in the tower. And if you ask that guy about changing insulators he, and, you know, what's working well with that piece of work, he might go, well, changing insulators is easy. I do that every day. That's the really good part of it. I've got really good controls and everything in place for that. But the thing that really annoys me is the fact that I've got to fill out a heap of paperwork that I don't feel it adds any value or we've got a system that's not supporting us um, that I'd really love if we could change it because it's not, it's making my work difficult. So it's taking me away from the important stuff that I'm doing, uh, which is managing risk and getting work done. So. So there's a couple of things you said there that I want to, I want to jump on. The, the first thing that you said that, I, that pricked my ears up in a way was that um, often when we, you kind of said that, compliance with the system. And I thought that was really interesting because it's often when we say compliance, we think what we're saying is compliance with legislation. What we're actually saying is complying with our own systems that we've made, be them right or wrong and or, or be them not delivering the value that we think they're de delivering. Um, and often actually when we talk about compliance, when we talk to customers, it's the same thing. Like we want to be compliant. Com compliant to what? 
well, we've wrote in this risk assessment, you must do this. Well, that's compliant to your risk assessment. Does that risk assessment align with what you're trying to achieve? Just as one very simple example. Um, so what, what kind of made you what kind of made you say that? Because that's something I've been thinking about quite a lot. So it's it, curious that we've both kind of stumbled on a very similar thought process. Yeah, well, my view has always been like I've been a very traditional um, safety guy all for years, right? And I was one of those guys who was out there and I was saying, you know, put your PPE on and do all that stuff, which is, you know, it's all really important stuff. Um, but I don't think it's the role of the HSE professional because it's, it's your time is, um, I suppose, it's, your expertise can be used better in other ways. Um, so being working in organizations in the past where I was, my job was to ensure that the system was implemented within the organization and different business units and so on. And then sitting in an office sometimes and writing a procedure based off what the legislation was saying. And then when you went out into the field or went out onto, onto the site and you were asking guys to comply with something, go, there is no way I can comply with this. And most of the time, the issues that affected people being compliant to a system were actually had nothing to do with safety at all, or actually there were operational pressures or there, were, or there was something else. So, and this is kind of why the, the safety two approach, and to, to be honest, as a, as a disclaimer as well, look, I love the concept of, of safety two and safety differently. I've worked for, with, with some of the best in the world in this space, Kim Bancroft and Steve and Tony McConaughey and, you know, what we did at Urban Utilities was amazing. So, um, but saying that, um, even working with Urban Utilities, the way we did at Urban Utilities, you couldn't cookie cutter that approach and bring it somewhere else, right? Um, but the focus for me, going back to what I was saying before, was really about trying to bring that information from the field back to the business to start changing the system to more reflect what, it, what was actually happening at the work. Because nine times out of 10, the guys were actually managing the risk, right? There was never a problem. Right? There was many times that there was a problem with the guys managing the risk. In fact, um, it was more that the system didn't support the work. So through this whole process, my aim has always been to, to start flipping that on its head and really get a good understanding of the work. Because even our audit processes, what they did was you would go out and do an audit on a site and the guys would know you were coming and then everything would be tickety-boo and they'd give you a little line or something to say that, oh, this thing is wrong over here. So you, you went back with something um, and then they'd walk away and get back to the normal work. Um, that wasn't really doing anything to improve safety. That was just saying that we were, they were compliant to the system. So if you kind of take that away and actually do your auditing a bit differently, you still need that compliance element of what you do. Um, but if you take that fear away of not passing an audit because we have KPIs against audits or reporting against audits, and then flip it on its head and then actually go out and ask the guys what's really going on and then bring the information back and then you can do your audit at a desktop level because what you're actually doing then is actually you're reflecting what's actually happening in the field and, and how your system interacts with that. Mm. See, it, it gives you information to do one of two things. It, it says that you can either change your system to reflect the work or to manage, to incorporate those, the way people are actually managing risk in real time, 
that's one way of doing it or the other way of doing it is actually if you feel like that's the only way we can manage the risk as an organization then you can go and work with your people to to support that work so that they can implement those controls because really all we're talking about in this space is managing risk and it's not so much uh, it, it's actually about having good controls in place because um, and, and understanding who owns the controls because sometimes we talk about risk owners risk owners and control owners and organizations can be two different people the most important part for me are who are the control owners and how do we support making sure those controls are available and working whenever they need to be so it kind of changes your conversation when, when you're talking to the business and when you're talking to your people in the field around how we manage risk. And, and it's actually a, lot, a better conversation because if you're just asking guys how do they actually do the work and then come back and do your, your order and, and re report back on the system piece to your, to your business with context, and that's the other part of it, we don't always give context when we're providing audits and inspections. What we're trying to do in this space is actually pull all of this data together to, to give us real context around processes or, or tasks or activities so that when we go back to the business, we can say, this is, this is the issue here, whether it's compliance to a system or whether it's that we just can't, do, we don't have the resources to do it or we can't implement that control. And, and then lots of context around it. So you're actually building that narrative and the story around that particular thing. It's not just you're compliant or non-compliant. So it changes the conversation. And the other thing we do, um, organizations have done in the past, is actually set your KPIs um, to have no non-conformances in your, in, in your high-risk audits, right? So then or, or, uh, if you have a major non-conformance, it gets reported straight up to the executive and the board, which is the right thing to do but it doesn't always drive the right behavior um, from your lines of reporting all the way through the organization. So yeah, that, that's probably the long way of saying it. I don't, I don't <laughs> but at the end, it's, yeah, that's probably the best way I can explain it. It kind of, it's, I think how you summarize it really well with that, that example of like a, a non-conformance, right? It's kind of like we, we're doing the right thing, but in the wrong tone in a way, like, you know, there's an opportunity there's there's something there's there's something that's that's not conforming let's just use that that word for now right so we've 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 audited it as a major non-conformance so go okay cool there's major non-conformance there and we communicate that straight up to the board for example because it's a major problem and that's actually a good thing but it's the tone in which it's done is wrong so like if we're if we're communicating it up to be like here's a major non-conformance and basically the tone of that is michael fucked up and we need to you know do the old blame shame and retrain but if we were to go there's something not right here we're not conforming to the system and i'm putting bringing this up to the board to to allow us and ops some resource and some time to work out what the problem here is it the is it the process is it the people is it the relationship between the process and the people we don't really know what it is because i think one thing one of the problems i have a lot of the time around a lot of the conversation with safety differently new view safety two, whatever you want to call it um is we 
do like you've mentioned it a lot like we need to understand the context of this stuff that that's a high level helicopter line that's actually really challenging to actually really get into and understand all these tiny little and sometimes very subtle and very often completely unseeable in a way influencing factors on the moment um and, and it comes back to something you said way over back into the, like the first um, time that you were kind of painting a picture of where you are, is this kind of systems-based thinking of understanding that all of these things are connected like a web, you know, and, and, and the fly drops on one part of the web and the spider can sense it over another, but the, all of the connecting dots between that are really complex. So I think we, we say a lot of the time about, you know, oh, we got to get these opportunities to learn. We can change our language there so we can sort the tone out. Easy peasy. But then we come to the next really hard bit is actually having the time and the resources to actually get into that context and then and then do something from it. I think a lot of people struggle with that. How how have you found that in your in your experience? Yeah, look, it's a challenge. I think where we are at the moment, um, the, the, the amount of data that we're bringing back to leaders is really, it's uncomfortable because we're with, um, because it's so much information, right? And, and I, we've, we've got some really good processes in place, you know, for asset management to manage um, critical assets and, with, and operationally to manage operational controls. I think where the opportunity for us in the future is just connecting those two together um, and, and see how they interact together. I think there's some, there's some great opportunities there. I think as it coming back to critical control management is probably the focus. If you can, if you can understand your, the life cycle of your, of your asset or your work, and you can understand what, what's the worst thing that is going to happen at every step in that process, and then focus on where you've got fatality or, or catastrophic you know outcomes with those and then put your focus on those and then understand i'll put some controls in there both mitigating and, and um uh, preventative controls um but then also understanding how they can fail um so, and then putting some performance criteria around it which is your critical control management or process safety management whatever you want to call it that approach there's some science behind it but um, really, it's trying to create systems and processes that gather data that inform you about what's actually going on in your business at the point of risk within those processes that is actually real data rather than just if you look at how we collect data and I talk about being linear, we've got some, you've got an incident injury management system which tells you when after something has gone wrong, but that's only when it's gone you know, wrong enough for people to tell you. Um, they don't always engage with that because that drives a lot of activity, all right, on top of what we do. And for this, for the stuff that's potentially serious, absolutely, that's the right thing to do. But sometimes we focus on the wrong things. We drive action on things that are so minute and actually don't have any context behind them for people to do put actions in place that might not be significant in the big scheme of things. It takes our focus away from looking at actually what's really important. Um, so yeah, look, if we can, coming back to your question, how are we doing at the moment? We've, we've got some good stuff in place. We're just building data to get better. And I suppose that's, that's 
probably where most people are, because I don't think you can ever get this perfect, even if you talk about perfect future state, you're always fighting against something to develop this, right? Um, but your, your intent always has to be to do your best to, to prevent that top event or that fatality or, or that catastrophic event. And that, that in our case, because we're a government entity um, and plus we're um, the potential for a high voltage electricity to do serious damage in our space is, is really, really is significant. And it's not just our people, it can be to the public, it can be to, um, yeah, it can be to property, it can be to, you know, some pretty, pretty um, sensitive and environments like we, we deal in the one of the most uh, protected areas in the world, you know, the Great Barrier Reef and, and the the the, uh, the rainforest in North Queensland that are we call protected as such. Mm -hmm. So there's some uh, environmental and culturally significant places there as well that we've got to think about, not just the um, the safety side of it. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. The couple, there's one other thing you mentioned a couple of times in there around like clutter, which I think is really interesting. So you gave the example of, um, you know, the guy, a guy on the shop floor or not in your case, not shop floor, probably up high on the lines or something like that. It's like, you know, I, this is a bit I love. I love, I do my job. I'm competent. I, this is what I love doing, but it's all of this paperwork. I don't, I don't like um, that's not helping me do my job and so on. And, there's a lot of conversations around clutter. Was that was that one of the biggest problem? Was that a problem that you're you're finding you're having to deal with? You look at as we go through this, um, we because our organisation has been around for a long time, and we've embedded a lot of these the processes that have been um, that you traditionally would see in any you know large organisations where we've got all of our work instructions and separate method statements and people rely really heavily on those as um, I suppose as a comfort blanket um, and I've been out in the field with the guys and I think they they do a really good job in this space so um, I don't know if the clutter is affecting them too much uh, to be honest I think um, where we've had real pain points is where we've been unclear with our intent with our safety system so, and it's where we, we lack clarity on roles and responsibilities. And that probably comes more into the contractor management space because um, even that, you know, how we traditionally manage contractors, particularly when they're principal contractors here in Australia. Um, and that's, that's across the nation, right? That's not specific to this industry has been a bit of a control and command, um, but that drives a lot of activity that's, kind of takes people away from their work and doesn't necessarily add value in some cases. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you've got a principal contractor, you're giving them control over a site. So what happens within their site is essentially under their safe system of work. So it's up to the contractor. Uh, where we come in and actually start giving direction around how they manage their safety, then we actually take on the risk. Where we've got to be really clear in this space is, where we've got shared risk ownership and where we have got ownership or um, responsibility on our side to protect our contractors from something that can have one of our assets, for example, the HV. Um, so the, the, the safety clutter, um, the, the clutter in this space is really more about 
um, the amount of things we're asking people to provide that really are unnecessary to provide a safe workplace, if you know what I mean, or the yeah. amount of activity we're driving in, in the contractor space to kind of get these guys on board when they are, you know, there's probably only four or five major contractors in Australia that do the work, <laughs> this type of work, and they do it across the whole country. Yeah. Um, you know, as an industry, we've got to get smarter at just saying, yeah, well, you've done this job before. Um, how do we provide you with certainty um, and, you know, consistent processes so you can do the work, get it done in a way that's efficient and, you know, we can support how you do safety rather than dictate how you do it. So in that way, that, that is that's where I would see safety clutter becoming a problem is more is also with our HSC system and the amount of activity it drives um, within, and I talk about inspections and so on. So if you drive KPIs of having, you know, so many inspections within the business, you're going to get that many inspections if it's going to be against a performance bonus. Um, that's probably the areas we've caused the most pain um, as an industry, um, as a, you know, in safety. Um, because we've driven people to do a number, so people will do the number and they'll tick the box. You're not actually getting any value out of the process by doing that. Yeah. I think they're the things where you can add more value. Yeah. There's a couple of things you said now that I think are really interesting. When you said about like the intent of the work. I think that that's something that we don't um you, you can tell the time difference, I've just realized by our drinks. Is I'm drinking a pint of like watered down orange juice and you're on the hard top shelf stuff. So like I love that. You can tell it's the time difference just from the drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's uh, it's freezing here. It's nearly seven degrees, so I'm <laughs> Jesus, that is cold. Trying to keep um yeah, yeah. yeah no, so um, what was I saying? Yeah, so I think I think that's a conversation we don't have enough. Is like we're gonna we're gonna bring this piece of work, or we're going to do this piece of work, or this check, or this risk assessment, or this document, or whatever. And I don't think we have that conversation enough to be. And what what's the intent of this? What 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 value do we think this is going to bring? What value are we trying to achieve? And and it. I mentioned it a couple of times on the podcast the last few weeks. We are literally um, just a, about to kick off uh, a project in our consultancy side of things, um, which is which is essentially asking that very same question and then coming up with a solution to that because what we might say was clutter still delivered a value, but it wasn't for safety, but it was done in the name of safety, which I thought was really interesting. So you, 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 you'll know what construction is like over here. So essentially construction, there is a lot of clutter, a lot of clutter in construction, but it is, it is a pretty chunky, risky uh, work environment, right? We do a lot of work in the name of safety that really doesn't have a lot of reflection on the shop floor. So we ended up having a conversation with, with our now customer. And um, I know the, the, that was kind of the, the problem was that we've got our RAMs as an example, our risk assessments and our risk and our method statements that we need to have, but they're generic 
and they don't really have much connection to the shop floor. So they're clutter, but I need them because I can't tender for the job and get on site without them. So actually they were delivering a commercial value, but they had the name safety on them. Right. So it was it in a way I kind of look at it like it's an indicator. So you were talking about kind of contractor management, right? So you're, you're I'm recruiting a contractor and I say, can you send me your Rams? That's an indicator. The quality of that Rams is a bit of an indicator of the caliber of company I'm working with, but it's not a guarantee. So it's not clutter. It's essentially delivering a, a value. Um, and, and then also particularly in construction in the UK, we kind of have to just go, we are where we are. Right. And we, we, we have to do that because I can't tender for the job. I can't get on site. So essentially this project that we're doing with the customer is about putting in, is, is looking at this holistically as a risk management program and saying, okay, we have to do that. Put that over there. Let's do that. Let's carry on doing that with the tender team or whatever. Now, what do we do with the shop floor? And, and what one thing we're doing is protecting them from, from the generic stuff because it has no reflect, it has no re, re, relation to what they're doing. So we just move, remove it from their world. And then we put in something that enables them to actually manage the risk in the moment. So there's a bit of tech, there's a bit of workshops, some upskilling, some changing of perception of the way that we manage risk. So we're doing this big project over the next three months and then hopefully um, a lot longer after that. Um, but ultimately, all around that notion of what you said there is that if this company hadn't have asked a question, this this risk assessment process or this risk management process that we have, what value is that delivering? They wouldn't have got the answer, none for the shop floor, but a lot for commercial. So we need to do something for the shop floor because we're satisfying commercial, but we're not satisfying actual risk management on the shop floor. And and after if if the cust if our customer hadn't have asked that question, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now, which is a fucking awesome project. But like that aside, I, I kind of wish I asked myself that question when I was, you know, head of safety manager of safety, advisor of safety. How many times could I have asked that question and maybe done some better work? And and I just think it, we couldn't have got asked for a cooler project for you know early on in in our company, but. That's what I think I'd love to see so much more people just going, okay, what's the intent of this piece of work? And are we achieving that intention? Yeah, you're right. There's two points there, right? And I will come back to the contractor example. You've actually got to understand what is the process, right? So what are the steps in the process? Like I was talking about before, if you understand what's the steps in the process, where is most of the risk happening in that process? The the risk is not always at the, the, the office bit when you're preparation. The, you, your risk when you're mobilizing a contractor project is when you're mo actually mobilizing the site, right? And then, those, and then when they're actually doing the work. So the question is for, for, and this is kind of how we're framing it up as an organization is, so how do we help our, our contractors be successful delivering the work? Because essentially, instead of being contractors in that, we're saying the delivery partners, right? And then, so, and when you start flipping that question around and say, well, how can we support them? And, and what do they need to be able to perform that work safely, right? Then it's a different proposition because then we start looking inwardly to our processes. And we've, we've built stuff over time for different purposes and reasons that, it might have been valid at the time, but at the moment when we're trying to deliver a huge amount of work over the next 10 years, 
we've got to become more agile. We want to be able to manage the risk in a way that supports the work, but also that we get the best outcome for us as an organization. So it's actually not saying, not saying throw out what you've got. You just might have to do it in a different way. And then the other thing, kind of what we've done, even over the last probably 16 months, is really start to get into um, the business and talk to the leaders about, well, what information do you need to make good decisions, right? And we're not just talking safety here because uh, good decisions about work have impacts on safety. So if you understand what information they need from a work perspective, you can deliver good safety outcomes, right? And similarly, we can, if we ask the question, well, what's getting in the way of delivering good work? Some of the questions might be how we, how our safety processes are affecting that, but there might be other processes in the business. We're a support function like anything else in the organization. So we've got an onus to, to kind of be um, mindful of how we're, I suppose, supporting the business in delivering safe work. And, and then that kind of look, gives us an opportunity to look at what we're doing and, and be agile and change and support the work. Mm. I re- I'll just type in some, uh, a little note there when you sort of, you know, essentially what, what we're doing is it's just collecting data to make better decisions, right? But that, that could also provide values to elsewhere in the business, to, to sales, to marketing, to operations, to the board for them to make better decisions that, that may may actually not be safety re- related, but actually safety is is essentially about get, understanding what's going on the shop floor, getting as much data as possible, making better decisions. Doesn't necessarily mean that's just for us. So I really, really like what you were saying there. I think that was, that was really good. So I just, I'll just write that down <laughs> um, in case it looked like I was doing my emails whilst I'm talking to you. I'm not, I'm taking notes. <laughs> In safety, we love extremes, right? We love tribalism. We seem to be addicted to it. So when people talk about AI coming into the workplace, particularly in safety, we automatically assume it's going to make someone redundant. It's going to make me redundant, make someone on the shop floor redundant. It's going to make a boardroom member redundant. And the list goes on. Whereas if we had a bit more of an open mindset, we can probably start to understand how AI can really enhance our roles. It can really enable us to just be better at what we do. And considering safety has been on a bit of a plateau for the last decade, more than a decade, then maybe it's something we should really be considering, something that can help us make better decisions. AI could provide more data than what we have ever had. AI can provide richer data than what we've ever had. Therefore, we can make better data-informed decisions. AI can make us better at what we do. And what we do is create better workplaces, right? So often when we think, oh, it's AI versus safety, it's not. It's, it's another amazing tool that I genuinely think, that we genuinely think at Risk Fluent and Rebranding Safety can really help us break that plateau. And if this is a topic that interests you and you want to find out some more, then you should definitely follow Protex AI. You should go and find out more about their webinar series that they're running. And the first webinar is called AI versus the EHS Manager. If you want to find out some more information, you should check out their website, which is in the description below.
Okay, so we've, I think we've we've kind of understood the problem quite a lot, and I think we've actually t- touched on throughout that conversation really what our solution is. So if I just try and maybe summarise that, and if anything I've missed, then feel free to kind of um, fill the gaps. Essentially, what you're you're trying to do is 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 kind of just build a better understanding of the shop floor to enable us to make better data informed decisions build build stronger relationships with the shop floor maybe so that process is a lot quicker and then ultimately hopefully manage the risk a little bit more dynamically so that it kind of aligns with the fast paced change fast pace of change um and the dynamic work environment that, that you are having to work within would that kind of be a, a a good summary of where you're trying to get to and on what the aim is yeah, yeah, and look, and and just as importantly, is actually being able to support the business, not just the shop floor, because you know if um, it's not easy for our leaders and organisations either, like um, to to be able to take in and deal with all of this information. I think that becomes our role in HSC is to kind of help them make sense of the operational and risk data that we're collecting, right? So that's where we we can add value, but also. If we if that's all we're collecting, we lose context, right? But yeah, it's it's supporting leaders, building trust, making sure that they're comfortable hearing those that bad news and welcoming the bad news um, openly within their teams, because it gives them an opportunity to to do something with the information, right, and support the work. So I, I think every every leader um, genuinely doesn't want anything to happen to their people, right? I, I firmly believe that. Um, so, so it's it's about supporting everybody in the business, not just the, the front line. The front line are the ones most at risk, and they're essentially our customers, right, from a H to C perspective, because they're the ones that are going to feel the brunt of anything that's going to go wrong. So, yes, there's a massive focus on protecting those guys, but really, we can't protect them without giving the information to the people that are actually making the decisions that have most of the power to actually do something to change those circumstances or improve the work. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that for so long we we kind of, we've, we've kind of avoided knowledge and safety, right? Because we've been very much like, we're not. Here's an example. Actually, I was having a conversation with a, with a potential customer, which I don't think will be uh, a customer the other day. That was kind of like, you know, we're a really safe company. We've had like three accidents in like the fifty years that I've been been doing what we're doing, um, and um, and I was like, okay, cool. How, how do you kind of how do you kind of I maybe actually wish I'd have kind of said this directly. Like, how do you know that? How do I know what? How do you know you're a, you're a safe company? Um, well, because you haven't had a, we've only had three accidents in fifty two years. Well, that's a good indicator, right? But like, have you or are they just the only three big incidents that people were telling you about? Like, and, and that was kind of indicative of how we've managed safety. Like, because safety was always communicated in this negative tone that we spoke about from the example of non conformances. Like, there's been an avoidance of knowledge. So like we've not really built enough data to actually understand what the situation is because we've just gone, it's all bad. If and then if there's nothing, then it's good. So like the it, having nothing, it kind of is is what Eric talks about, isn't it? Like what what how do we understand there's a presence of safety? Like the absence of accidents isn't the presence of safety, and that's essentially what we're talking about here. 
But it, it, it is funny that in everything else, in finance, in business economics, in marketing, and sales, what we do is we try to learn as much as we can, keep our fingers on all the pulses, what's going on in the market, how do we understand, you know, oh, what's our competitor doing, what's this doing, what's the banks doing, what's the interest rates, just watch the news every morning. When it comes to safety, we go, no, just crack on and just tell me if something goes wrong. We don't really want to know about anything else. It's so fascinating, isn't it? It's the, it's the opposite way around. And then when we're trying to say, actually, let's go and just understand what's going on on the shop floor, it's surprisingly it's surprisingly a harder conversation sometimes that I have with people where they, they just don't get it um, a lot of the time, which is why I think that customer probably won't be a customer. Um <laughs> Yeah, and this is kind of my thinking in this space has really changed over the last few years from, from being safety system focused to, to being organizational focused. Because I think if you, if you broaden your view of how you support the business and the workers, right? Um, and then you look at how, as you said before, you look at how the rest of the business makes decisions. They don't look at things in isolation. They actually try and bring in data from other areas. The, I think... Sometimes, and I've seen this, your safety reporting becomes a, a set of numbers, right? That and, and, and I've asked some of our leaders this question. Does that, does the information we give you, and, and this is a genuine question, I don't know the answer to this. Does this information we give you, give you, uh, give you the understanding of the state of safety in your area of the business? Yeah. Right. Is that actually telling you what's really going on and whether your people are safe or not? And it's interesting to hear the, the replies because most of the time people actually haven't even thought about the question about what we're giving them as being good information to make to, to understand the state of safety. And and we've got I don't know on this movement at the moment, um, you know, safety definitely safety too, or, or whatever you want to call it. We're always looking for different metrics on how to do it, right? Um, and to be honest, you can't put a number against it. You genuinely can't because every area of the business is going to have a different metric for managing what's safe or giving context about what's safe. For example, if you're dealing with it in a maintenance space, right, um, the metric for, for safety in that space might be an understanding of coming back to that critical control piece of what's the worst thing that can happen when our people are doing their job, right? And then what controls have we got in place for that? And then are we actually understanding whether they're working? Do we know how they're going to fail? And what supporting activities have we got in place to make sure that they are available and working all of the time? So that's a different metric to say you've your total recorded injury frequency rate is is 10 or whatever, right? Mm. Because it, I don't think it tells you that story. And so it's not an easy answer to give. Like I could not honestly say I could give that answer to a board. But what I can do is in different parts of the organization where we're doing high-risk activities, I can tell you where we're work, where we're doing really good work and what's working really well when it comes to controls. And, and I can tell you where our controls need to be improved. So that's a different conversation. It's harder to do, and that's why people haven't really done it yet. All right, and in some organizations they do, and I'll see in Petrochem and whatever, the critical control measure and performance criteria, they do that. But 
majority of organizations don't really do that because they don't build a narrative behind the state of safety. And I think that's probably our challenge over the next little while is to be able to do that in a way um, that gives confidence that what we've got in place is working. Um, yep. But to do that, you need good data. I think the last bit you said there was was absolutely spot on. Is that confidence? Like if we got confidence in what what we're doing is actually working. Like I, I and then and then is that a, is that a real evidence based sense of confidence or is that our is that a false sense of confidence in a way? Like so, I I used to use this example when I was in I was in fire safety uh, predominantly for a long time, and used to say, well, you know, when, when if you when I worked in housing, like I said, what are we trying to achieve? We were doing this big fire uh, improvement project. What are we trying to achieve? And I and I said, what we're trying to achieve is that next time, because there will be a next time, next time there's another Grenfell, our CEO watches the news and says we've confidence that's not going to be one of our buildings and they can back that confidence up with a series of data and evidence like that's where we're trying to get to so i think accidents and incidents fall into that as an indicator as a collection of data but it is if we're doing that on its own solely just that then it's a pretty poor indicator so it's kind of like are you, I think if you went to most companies, particularly the more kind of, say, naive type companies or, or, or less mature companies might say, yeah, I'm confident we're a safe company. Okay, based on what? Well, I, I believe we are. We've got risk assessments. We've got this stuff and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we've got a belief. And I think a belief is an important part of it. What's the evidence that, that backs up that belief and that feeling of confidence? Is it the stress testing of those risk assessments to see if they do fail, how do they fail? Is it the amount of accidents? Yep, you do that. Great. Awesome. What's the what's the essentially stress testing that process as well? What's the quality of, of accidents, incidents, and near misses, whatever you want to call it, that get fed into you? And what's the the softer, core, more woolly type conversational based data that you're getting from the shop floor and so on and so forth? So for me, I think a, a lot of the desired state for people that I'm working with that are doing similar to work to what you're doing is is that evidence based confidence um for me is like the long-term solution so it's not really like a yep we're here we're confident it's just like a constant evolving feeling in a way which is hard to put on a dashboard in on a presentation slide in the boardroom right yeah it is it, 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 there's there's again it's it's having clarity over your critical controls in your business right and that's probably the the perfect end state um but it even when you get to that point, it's constantly monitoring that for, for defeating factors because your defeating factors on, on controls will, will change, right? Because you've got, you know, you, 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 I suppose your local factors, your, your organizational factors, and then you've got the external factors that potentially will impact that. And an example of that might be in the current environment, we've got supply chain issues, right? So if you talk about a critical piece of kit, like an earthing switch, uh, which is designed to be in place and it's got to be available 100% of the time. And, and then some of the defeating factors in that are if we've, we've got to have some performance criteria around how we, the specifications on that piece of kit, right? But if we can't get that, everything switch in the first place to be able to install it, right? 
that's a defeating factor and that's an externally that's something that's driven by the external environment that's not something we can control ourselves and even in the COVID uh, world over the last number of years that's something we could have never predicted in this space so you know so there's there are things that you've got to constantly keep on top of and gather data to ensure that what you've got in place is working and 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 try and understand the ways it can fail and put something in place to try and manage that so it's it, you never and then this is probably a hard statement for people to to take but i don't think you ever could get it <laughs> i don't think anybody ever gets it fully well it's you've just got to keep trying and keep gathering real-time data um and as uncomfortable as it might be sometimes you've got to be able to hear, uh, hear bad news and, and those stories of where it might fail absolutely yeah well i, I kind of um compare it to like a an, an elite sports person right in the the journey to get to like olympic kind of you know first team for playing for new zealand england whatever rugby team is is ireland mate you say ireland you're going to say Ireland, right? We've we've beaten the All Blacks recently. So. Yeah, you know, to be fair, probably the best team in the world at the moment. Um, I've got a concern you might have peaked a bit too early. If I'm honest, you need to wait a little. You needed to you needed to wait till next year, is it? Yeah, next year. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it might peak. That normally bit. happens. We do we do tend to peak early, and that's. <laughs> you did it in the last World Cup, I think, didn't you? The year before, you yeah. were phenomenal, and then, yeah. Wait and see, mate. Wait and see, but I was so impressed with England. Anyway, this is not a rugby podcast. Um, right, where was it going? Yeah, so if you were to if you were to kind of compare it to like an elite level team like England or even like a second level team like Ireland, maybe <laughs> you've got to work really hard to get to that point. And from from you know couch potato to a, you know, high level fitness is is the hardest journey, but you don't get to like the level of of that and then just stop, do you? Like, but we we often treat safety that we think that's what's going to happen. Like, well, we'll implement this program, we'll do safety differently, we'll do behavior based safety, we'll do hop, we we'll do whatever, we put it in, cool, and then we just stop. No, that's that's not like we where else would you ever do that for anything else? You never would. Like it's the same as in sport in that you would get to it. But once you're there, you don't stop. It just becomes easier to, to maintain. So like you're maintaining that, that state, but you're constantly looking and you're going to keep having, you know, the little injury and you're out for six weeks and then it's hard again to bring it back, which for us would be an incident. So it's like, it's not a badge to achieve. It's like a constant state to get to and then maintain and, and keep evolving. Yeah, it is. And you never really, um, as I said, it's also trying to find those things that are the really important things to focus on and trying then to manage those really well. You, you can't forget about the rest of the stuff, but it's just making sure you keep one eye on that and the other eye on, on the critical stuff. Um, yeah. I think I think the challenges for us in organisations are, you know, to get to that state. And, and I suppose thinking about you know, different sizes of organizations is it, it, this is scalable, right? So it's even at a very basic level, if you're a, a, um, you, you've, you know, a, a sole trader and you've got your own job and you can understand the worst thing that goes wrong and what you've got in place to manage that, that's just good, 
risk management, but um, it, it's scalable all the way through. So, but for bigger organizations, it's it's a lot more difficult because you, the amount of resources, time, and money it takes to get to that point is is huge. Um, and then you because you've got more, it's more complex and more moving parts. You've got to you've got to get the ship moving in the same direction and not pulling against each other. So it's um, it, it is definitely a challenge, but it's it's definitely a noble goal to keep striving towards that. And um, yeah, just coming back to the previous statement that whatever you do and when you're managing risk, it's always about good data to make, to make informed decisions, right? And so it's it's coming back to that. How do you get that good data and and the principles that we we use the hot principles to underpin how we do that at the first point? So it's not saying that we 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 don't hold people accountable. We do, but it's forward accountability. It's not uh, account accountability in the in the old sense where you're accountable for stuffing up. So yeah, it's it, it's it's definitely a good space to be in. It's an interesting space, but it also changes how we operate as HSC professionals too, because um, because we're not the experts in everything. We've we can be experts in some things, but not in everything. So it's a real challenge for us as professionals to try and change our mindset and become more facilitators and coaches rather than. Uh, experts in, in in every piece or facet of the work so yeah yeah okay cool i want to spend the last like half hour ish um just really getting into your your journey really so last like kind of 20 minutes half an hour on i probably want to start really michael kind of where did you start like and I know you kind of started your journey and all of this a long time ago. And like you said, you've worked with Andrea and Steve and Tony and, and a lot of other kind of real powerful people in this space, really intelligent kind of thought leaders doing the do. I'm, I'm curious to, uh, in the company that you're with now, how did it start? Like, was it when you, when you were brought in, they were already brought into this idea of like, wanting to do safety in this type of way or did you have to kind of sell it to them no i think uh, the organization had started down this path prior to me joining the company um i think um they wanted to do something different and then the guys as I said before the guys were really interested in the the whole safety differently approach as you know and i think most people have the this problem is how do you operationalize this stuff? So what are the things you actually do to, to implement it? So they were kind of struggling with that. So really all they wanted to do initially was to start doing learning teams and introduce that in as a, as a different way of learning about the work and kind of start having conversations around uh, when events happen, how do we respond and how do we get good information? So that was probably the basic piece from my perspective. There was already work happening in the background to kind of build a strategy because uh, one of our objectives as part of our company strategy is to unleash our potential, right? So, which I think is a really cool objective for the HSE strategy to sit under, right? Because it, for that means it, it's we're trying to unleash the, the organizational potential, and 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 it gives you the freedom to do something different in this space. Um, our CEO is also a data nut, so he loves data. So whatever you can provide to him um, in, in any form, whether it's qualitative or quantitative data, he just loves it. Uh, he's even got a sign on his desk, you know, in God we trust everybody else bring data. Um, but he's, um, so 
having a guy like that who's really curious and is and doesn't see himself as the expert in everything and really relies on his people to bring him good information so he can make good decisions um this approach kind of resonated with him i think um so when we came into the organization myself and my counterpart chris rose whose his background is a, an organizational uh, coach and he's got a safety background as well he's, he's a liney by trade or a linesman is by trade so um kind of the two of us I'm, i've done learning teams before and chris has done like facilitation we kind of went to the executive team and asked them that question you know what do they want to learn about or what do they want to understand and then um we had one of our executives in particular who who basically said look i'm really interested in contractor management because of the changing environment and he goes and so and how do we build better relationships like um because he was a new executive in that area so he allowed us to go and supported us to to kind of put together about five or six learning teams um one internal but in our own and everybody involved in contract management are part of the business and then each of our major capital contractors that support our business as well about what's working what's not working but the problem statement at the top was understanding best practice contractor management and how do we build better relationships so that was probably the first big piece of work we did we didn't start small we started fairly large and then um then in the background the strategy was being built and then this, there was a bit of a roadmap over the next few years to introduce operational learning as part of that so we, to be honest we're actually still in the space where we're actually still haven't bedded down those processes within the organization yet we've probably taken over 12 months to kind of really get out there and try different forms because we really wanted to build something that actually suits the business and not cookie cutter an approach from somewhere else and so we've we've tried some more wacky stuff some has worked some hasn't um but what we have been able to do as part of that is engage a number of different leaders in the business about receiving different types of information and also getting groups of people together that wouldn't normally get together in a room that were part of a process to be able to hear each other's story in context um and that's probably been the most valuable part of what we're doing at this stage um the other thing was to to go and develop some other tools called work insights and risk work insights because learning teams as a, as a thing can be really resource heavy right so even if you're doing them proactively or reactively um they take a lot of time and effort and we have to bring people in out of the field to do this type of work and it takes a lot of commitment from sponsors to follow the process all the way through um so we wanted to create more agile learning tools that were anonymous and essentially people could use in the field um so we're just in the process of systemizing that at the moment and we're starting to pull in some really good operational data but everything you do across learning teams and all the other activities you do they're all task and activity based within a process so if you if you, and then that's kind of instead of you know when you do assurance um normally when in a hsc system piece you kind of look at working at heights on in isolation uh, or confined space in isolation or or something and oh your highest activity is in isolation but our organization we we can be climbing a tower changing high, um insulators with high voltage you know working at heights it's 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 understanding the context of that one piece of work where you might have actually five different high risk activities or and how do they interact and then how potentially 
they could happen because they can happen in multiple ways, but it's actually specific to that activity, not looking at working at heights across the business because we've got towers across the whole state. Mm -hmm. So really starting to look at a process level of, of activity and starting to build up that data. So, so with that in mind, we've decided that we're going to put that all together, all this data together in one big framework. And we're still building that as well. So there's a lot of work to do in this space to kind of find out how we can actually put all this data into this big data pool and then extract that data for different uses. So from a HSC perspective, we're just putting all of our activities into one pool and then health and wellbeing can pull out information, you know, safety, electrical safety, environment. Uh, and then we've got a whole bunch of data that we've collected about the work that we give to the business units. Um, so, and we're starting to give it to them and work out with them how they want to use it. So we're not actually dictating to them what they do with the information. Um, some parts of the business at the moment are kind of using it. We've done learning teams and instead of driving an improvement plan out of it, we've just said they're doing a lot of activity already. So it's actually helped them to, to confirm what they're doing is right and support that work rather than having the need to actually drive actions out of it. The business kind of has an idea where the problems are and they're using the information to inform their decisions going forward so that's what i was talking about earlier the stuff we're doing is not always having an action plan out of it at this stage and we don't know what that's going to look like in the future but really at this stage it's just trying to provide good information to these leaders so they can help support their work and their decision making going forward um, and that's really uncomfortable for us in the safety profession because we've given you this data or an investigation report or something like that, and you've got to drive an action plan out of it for this specific piece of work. But in isolation, it might not be the right thing to do. You've got to look at it in the context of, of everything else that's going on. So that's kind of our future state is looking at all of this data we've collected about processes and tasks and activities, making sure it's available to the businesses so they can use it how they want to use it but also we can pull out what we need and improve our processes and systems that way. So yeah, that's probably the ideal future state and, and then getting into the space of using predictive analytics and all that other cool stuff that's, that's there, but um, that's kind of way down the track. The, the very basic at the moment is how do we deal with the amount of data we've got at the moment to support what we're already doing and to support the leaders with their decision-making and present it in the way that makes sense to them as well. So Yeah. Talk to me, like, I think a lot of the time we say, oh, we do some learning teams, do some learning teams, do some learning teams. And we kind of talk about learning teams like it's something that absolutely everybody knows how to do, like riding a bike. Um, like, talk, talk to me, like, kind of like a cradle to grave, like, what's a learning team for you? Like, how do you, how do you put that together? How do you facilitate a conversation and, and get the data out of it? Like, what, what is a cradle, what is a learning team um, in the context of you and your organisation? At the moment, learning teams can be probably four or five different things at the moment. So we've got proactive, we're kind of putting it into two buckets. We've got proactive learning and reactive learning, right? So yep. proactive learning, the steps, the basic steps in the process are the same, but the deliverables on, on each of them is kind of different. So um, from an incident perspective, if something happens, like the first thing you need to do is understand what actually happened, right? So that why that thing failed at, at a very basic level. So you can do that learning 
that technical type of investigation straight up. And that, that shouldn't take too long because it's ringing the guy to tell me what happened, right? And then there's, um, from, there's always a legal component of, of incident management, which is also a statement of facts. So because we're an electrical entity, if it's an electrical incident, we need to then report it to the regulator. So we've got to outline a statement of facts. So they're the first things you, can, you need to do regardless. And obviously check your controls, what controls were in place and were they working? Right. So it doesn't matter what type of investigation you do or what, however you do it, that's the first thing you do. What controls are in place? Where are they working? If, they're, if there were controls in place, if there weren't controls in place, get something in place to manage the risk immediately. Right. That's, that, that's normal practice. So what we do then is we kind of look at the learning teams as, as a supplementary process out of the back of that. So then um, how we engage it is if, if an event happens, they will engage. At the moment, there's just a couple of us running learning teams in the organization at the moment with a view to kind of expanding that. Um, but really what it is, is having a conversation with us around what do you want to learn about and what do you already know as leaders? Because sometimes they've got heaps of information they don't need to learn anymore. Or sometimes there is an opportunity where, look, I really want to deep dive into this and actually find out what's really going. I'm not really sure or comfortable or don't have confidence that what we're doing is is working and then then out of that we we kind of come to a, a problem or a, well, I won't say a problem statement we try to make it a, a positive statement and most of the time it's understanding dot, dot, dot process and sometimes it might be procurement all the way through to construction of a particular piece of plant so you start to build the connections between different processes in the organization and uh, from there what we do is we get all of the leaders involved in that those different divisions or areas of, of, of risk owners as such together. And we say, well, who do you need, who do you think will be good in this learning team? And, uh, and I suppose, and what outcomes do you want out of it? And, and then we put that statement together, make sure that we get the learning team together, we organize it, the logistics of it generally, we can do them face-to-face -face or online. So we've been able to do, um, we've set up a mural, template uh, or a number of templates where we can facilitate them online. It's not always the best, but it kind of, we're adapting to how the business operates as well. We can't always get people into the office because yeah. they can be hundreds of kilometers away yeah. doing work. So that's not always. Um, and the ones we've done are generally over about six and a half, seven hours. Um, so they're big pieces of work. Um, so the process of that is actually, we get the guys in, we talk about, we get the sponsor in to, or the main sponsor in to go out, well, we want to hear everything. We trust you. Like, this is no, there's no blame. We're going through the hot principles. We talk about that. Then we kind of agree on ways of working for the day. And then we go through and really spend the first half of the day just really trying to understand, I suppose, what's working well, what's not working well. So that's our learning phase. Uh, and then we, we break for lunch and then we come back. And then we get into the idea space. We don't call them solutions because um, it's really up to the risk owner or the leader to kind of work out what solutions there are in their context. So we're just trying to support that. We're trying to give them ideas to potentially fix the where they've got problems. Also, sometimes we've got some really good positive stuff that we want communicated as well because of all the really good stuff we're doing. And, and that's kind of been something different that the organization haven't really done a lot of prior to this they have done it in ways but not not through a facilitated group piece like this 
Um, and so the guys really like that piece because they get to say what they do really well or what somebody else does really well. And it confirms that what we're doing in some areas is actually working really well. Uh, from there, the sponsor comes back in at the end and, and listens to the story. We, we get a few of the participants from the learning team to help us develop or write the reports and then come up with a, um, and then present that back to the sponsor team. And then all the way through to, to creating the improvement plan. So it is, there's consultation and there's support from the people in the room all the way through. And then we, about three months after the learning team, we get we come back and um, the leaders report back to the participants about what actions are being taken or not taken and why and so on. And so it's it's a full communication. So they're big pieces of work. Um, but there are other ways of facilitating conversations like this. I have been involved in events or conversations where you've something has happened on site. It's really straightforward what happened. Like it's you know this thing wasn't crimped properly or something happened. Um, we know exactly why it happened. We didn't have a spec for it. We'll just fix that. Right, that's fine, and we move on. And then we just document that and move on. So it's it's actually about understanding how much learning we can generate from the activity. And if it's going to be useful for the people that, that want to hear it. And then proactively, it's exactly the same process, but again, setting it up in a way that they want to understand the current state of a process, essentially, and then working through that. Um, but yeah, again, we haven't quite finalized what that fully looks like. We haven't thrown any, any of the, the old practices out. We haven't changed the procedures. We've, this is supplementary to what we're doing at this stage. Um, yes. Some people still prefer to, to do other ways and we haven't taken that away either. If they prefer to do an iCam or something different, um, that's still still the case. So it's, it's kind of just giving people a choice at this stage around how they want to learn and how they want to gather data and then, yeah, move that forward. Nice. Well, I, I, and, and thank you for that, Michael, because I think, I think that what you've just done there is, um, is really valuable and I think a lot of people don't, don't really get into a learning team um or what it what it is like for them and 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 kind of like you said like you're still working out and tweaking it for yourselves and I, I think there is it's really nice to hear how you're doing it because people might have started doing it their own way and it's working all right but they might take a couple of little bits from yours and so on and and we all go like i'm not a massive fan of keeping this hidden behind paywalls and and shit like let's just have some more conversation well, I, obviously like i'm a consultant so there's always a paywall but like as much as we can 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 talk about the best but there isn't a paywall here so that that's my point <laughs> trying to tie myself in knots here um so yeah thank you for that <laughs> I, I think there was something interesting you said there around um there's something we've just recently done um with with a customer and looking at the way that they respond to incidents um and and the first thing that we we did was we removed the the kind of word investigation um and the first step we've replaced it with just data gathering so we literally just called it 
data gathering. So we designed them a template, which is really simple. And it basically just asks a shitload of questions. What happened? What was the result? What was the weather like? What was the, what was the environment like? What systems are applicable to this process? List them out. Anything that you've, you've spotted that didn't work that you know we, we might need to look at immediately, immediate learnings and so on and so forth. So we're not giving it to the manager and saying, you know, the manager of that environment is saying, do an investigation, which I think they find quite daunting. If we think about investigation, we think about like fucking the bill or Sherlock Holmes or something like that. Like all, all I'm asking you to do is just look at what happened. Use your knowledge of your environment because you run the space. This is your, this is your baby. Talk to your team and collect as much data as possible. And then the the kind of manager that we're dealing with, and they're sort of like, well, what do we do with that data? Well, you make a decision. Is there something that you've got the time, the resource, and the desire to take this further and learn something from? Can you learn something from it? And do you want to do that? And that's a risk-based decision that you as a company need to make. You might go, we haven't got time for this, and I don't think it's worth it because it's a little incident. It's not you know it's not in a big risky area so we're just not going to bother because it's just a a slip in the reception but you might go we've had 50 slips in the reception over the last couple of weeks we actually want, i want to look at this now like this is weird something's going wrong here you know and it's i think it's important to have that conversation and have the cojones to turn around and go let's just leave it at that leave it at that data gathering exercise for now or let's not because to your point to do a proper learning exercise off the back of something like an incident or even proactively it's heavy resource if we're going to do it and it deliver value it's a long time you know just just the exercise you said there you know five or six people out for pretty much a whole day really getting into something then the consequence of work off the back of that to structure it and also keep track of it to and the, and the bit I really loved what you're doing there is getting the leaders to come back and give some disclosure about what we've done and what we haven't done and why we haven't done it. I mean, that's something we don't do very often in safety is, okay, thanks for your feedback. We're not going to do anything with it. And there might be a valid reason as to why we're not doing anything with it. We don't feed feed that back. So then I just feel like I'm not being listened to. So I'm going to stop feeding back. So I absolutely love what you what you were talking about there. And, and interesting, there's bits in there that, that I'll take away um, that I thought, oh, that, that's slightly different to how we're doing it. And I really like that. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. I think that was really good. Really good. No, it's all right. And I think what's critical in that question up front to, to the business or to leaders is, look, we're happy to do and facilitate these, these activities, but we collect a heap of data in our business already. Like there's so much information available in the organisation around things that have happened previously or um, investigations that kind of get tucked away into your systems that get pulled, don't really get pulled out of the cobwebs to see, well, we had, did we have something similar happen? What did we do? Did we actually fix it the first time? Um, is it, you know, or do we already know from this what we need to do, but just haven't quite implemented it yet? Or have we got plans in place to kind of fix this thing? Now we, we've got a better understanding of it. Maybe we can tweak that a little bit. So it's actually not really linear. It's actually what we're trying to do is create a bit of a, 
as I said, a multiple choice of activities they can do to learn. And so the, sometimes we create systems that are very resource heavy, but actually don't add any value. And so the question we always ask is what information is already available? Do you need to learn more? If you do, great. Right, and how big is that learning? Because it could be as simple as get the people in the room, have, have a 20 minute conversation. Or if you really want to get on top of the, the, the process, get them all in and, and do it. So, and that comes back to that value piece, like as a HSC function in our organization, we've got to add value and not create pain. So sometimes our processes do create, because we think you need to do it a certain way, it may not always add value back to the business. So if you can offer the business a different way of doing it to gather the same information and, and they get what they need out of it, it's a different value proposition. So you're still doing your work. You're still, you're still adding value to the business. But sometimes we do it just because it says we need to do it on a procedure and it may not always be the right thing to do. So. Yeah. There's one, one last question I wanted to um, just quickly ask. How, how are you picking? You said you had a sponsor for your learning team. How are you picking the sponsor? Um, generally, it goes back to what, what's, what's actually happening now is they're picking us. So they're actually coming to us and asking us, can you actually look into this? So um, initially it was um, when an event happens um, in our system, it, it, somebody becomes the sponsor, they own that risk. Uh, yeah. So generally it's the risk owner at this stage. Um, but we're being asked to do different learning teams. And it's to be honest, majority of the stuff has got nothing to do with safety. The majority of the outcomes have got to do with operational practices, processes, and so on. Um, it's only recently I've had one action that I can potentially take back to help to improve the HTC system out of what we've done 16 in over two years. So, so all of them have got safety implications, but most of the systems that they affect have got nothing to do with HTC system. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really difficult even for, for, for the HSC team to understand that this data is not HSC data. It's the, the sponsors and the business the risk owners data so we can help support if they want our support um but we shouldn't jump in and, and offer and try and drive something that's not really adding value to them um we can we can definitely give them support but yeah look at this stage the sponsors are are kind of asking us and as it's becoming more and more well known in the organization we're doing different types of things as well so as i said i've we've run them within an hour um with four people and versus um, over six or seven hours with 20 people are run them online with 14 people. So it's just adapting your process to, to meet the business needs and then deliver an outcome that is that probably adds value. So yeah. Awesome. Mate, that was great little insight, I think, into, into kind of the journey. And, and what I think a lot of people are doing is reading a book and going, I fucking love this. I want to go and do it. And they spit the baby out, the dummy out of the pram and all of this stuff. And they throw the baby out with the bathwater and, um, and then go, 
shit now what and I, and I think just listening to your journey kind of really getting into kind of your desired state where you are now and then really getting into essentially learning teams really but some of the other stuff that you're doing as well I think it will be really helpful to a lot of listeners so thank you very much for that Michael uh, are you available on LinkedIn or anything if anyone wants to ask you any other questions is that a good place to get you yeah, mate, just um, just see me on LinkedIn. I'm not uh, very active on LinkedIn. I'm more of a face-to-face or via Teams type person. So I love having conversations with people. So happy to do that. Um, but yeah, via LinkedIn, you can just jump on there and, and, and connect with me. I'm happy to do that. Um, sure. Yeah, no, thank you, mate. I really, um, really enjoyed the opportunity to, to kind of get a word in edgeways. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so no, it's been good. Thank you for that. No worries, mate. Thank you very much for coming back on. Okay, peeps, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, think of one person, just one person to share it with. That's all you need to do. Just want, just maybe it's your operational leader and you think, oh, yeah, they could, oh, this is this is what I want them to think. I want them to understand this is what I'm trying to achieve. Maybe you get a link, you put in an email, you say, yo, boss, I'm thinking this is what we need to talk about. Let's grab a coffee, have a listen to this, have a chat. Maybe it's someone on the shop floor. Maybe it's just a friend, another partner colleague whatever just share it with them one person do us a favor and help us rebrand safety one interaction at a time if you did enjoy it give it a like a follow whatever if you need any help with this stuff don't forget to check out www.riskfluentltd.com or you can email me james at riskfluentltd.com don't forget we've also got merch you can have a safe fist bump hoodie jumper we've got caps we've got a lot you go and have a look if you want some have a bit of fun while you're in safety go check that out as well there's a little thing along the top little dashboard along the top says rebound safety click on that click on merch and you're there peeps you get yourself a mug as well so you can not look like a mug and have a mug and it's a safe mug like that yeah there we go www.riskfluentlimited.com uh, otherwise i'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.